Father, we love you. We need you, Father. Thank you for reminding us in a thousand ways, in all of our shortcomings, in all of our weaknesses, even through a, a virus that we don't know much about. You're reminding us that you are sovereign and you are in control. You are the king of the universe and we are not. Uh, Lord, we don't deserve our, ne our next breath, but in your grace and in your mercy, you continue to bear with us. Not because you're looking over our sin, because, but because you're merciful. Because you're giving us opportunity to yet again come to you. Uh, so may our lives be marked with repentance, our continual turning from our sin and, and turning to you. Your grace is big enough big enough for all of our sins and so would you help us realize that this morning would the word of God penetrate our hearts deeply today in a way that changes us that turns us to you thank you for Richard and everything that he's put in today's message he's done what he's, he can do father and so would you anoint him with your spirit May his words not just reach our ears, but penetrate our heart, not because of his power, but because of the spirit in him. So magnify your name through these words in this room, over the web, across the nation and across the globe, Father. May Christ be high and lifted up and people be drawn to him because of the beauty in his sacrifice. In Christ's name we pray. As you know by now, our mission statement begins with a phrase, we desire to help you applaud God. We chose those words because we truly believe that that's the key to life and the key to joy. God is astonishing, and the greatest joy in life comes from you seeing him as one who is astonishing. A Bible verse that highlights our astonishment of God would be Exodus 15, 11, who among the gods is like you, Lord? Majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders. We, like the world around us, once did not understand this verse. Didn't say it with our lips because we didn't see it with our eyes and didn't feel it with our hearts. But once we saw, tasted, and felt, God changed us. We have a new ability, and this is our song. Who is like you, God? We're astonished. At the glory of God. So who is God? Well, you can ask a thousand people. You're going to get a thousand answers. But there's only one answer. There's only one God. And he's revealed himself to us in the Bible. I'll give you an overview if you read the whole Bible of what he's like. He's more powerful than all of history's armies. Bigger than a trillion stars and a billion galaxies. He knows more than all the books and brains and computers of the earth. Everything you own came from the matter that he created. He knows how your day is going to end. He knows how history is going to end. 
God is more explosive than a million volcanoes and more humble than any soul who's ever lived. He will never stop convicting you of rebellion, and he will never stop forgiving you of any rebellion you confess. He is a loving father to some and a fierce lion to others. Everyone who has ever lived will stand before the Lord and give an account of their life, and they'll either be admitted into heaven or exiled to the devil's hell based on one thing. Did they rely upon God's mercy with no dependency on their own goodness, or will they declare that they are self-sufficient and have no need of God? You would think that everybody in the world would say, tell me everything there is to know about God, but that's not the case. They don't want to know everything about God. Instead, they want to construct a God who is safe and easy and tame. God is not tame, and he can't be tamed. In fact, every day he's in the process of taming the world. He's leading the world exactly to the place that he planned from the beginning. And when history is over, his kingdom will be the only one that is standing. Inside its walls will be endless joy. Outside of its walls will be endless sorrow. During the Reformation, Martin Luther wrote to a man he was debating named Erasmus. And he said, your thoughts of God are too human. And maybe we could rephrase that today to our culture. Your thoughts of God are too small. The views that most people have of God are dishonoring to him because they attempt to shrink him and resize him to fit into a container they've made. The God of this culture is a figment of human imagination. In ancient times, pagan made gods out of wood and stone. Today, we just use random thoughts and crafty words And it's not a true picture of God. God's rebuke to Israel hundreds of years ago was, you thought I was exactly like you. The reason we so either dismiss God as irrelevant or revolt against him with no fear is that we don't contemplate on his greatness. And contemporary preaching is not helping If you want to pack a church these days, you just present God as big enough to help you, but not so big as to frighten you. Certainly not majestic enough that he's deserving of your repentance from all that displeases him. The current strategy of many teachers and churches is to get the world to like their church so that hopefully then the world will like Jesus. So they spend their time resizing God to fit their taste of their audience. And God is dishonored by such idolatry. He will never be a man-made God. So who is he? Well, first, he is eternal. Genesis 1-1 says, in the beginning, God. Breathtaking words. Because when you think about that, what does it mean in the beginning? Well, it means when there was nothing No stars, no planets, no rivers, no angels, nothing but God. Not even time, but for the sake of helping us understand, think about this, for trillions of years, just have to use that because we have no other construct, for trillions of years before there was time, there was God. No one, nothing but God. This is how the psalmist says it. 
before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the whole world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. So because God is everlasting, because he's eternal, he had no beginning. Because if he were created, if there was ever a starting point for God, the one who created him would then be God. So God, by very definition, has to be someone who never began. He's eternal. Just contemplate someone who has always been. This is what God wanted Moses to know when Moses said, Who am I going to tell the people that is now leading them out of Egypt? And God said to Moses, My name is I am who I am. It was a reference to his eternality, his non createdness. He's always existed. Nothing existed before him, and everything that exists therefore depends on him. He does not depend on anything he has created. God is the one who created for our benefit time, matter, and space. Prior to that, time didn't exist. Matter didn't exist. Space didn't exist. There was just God filling everything. Because he created these things, they are dependent on him for their existence. God is not dependent on anything for his existence. Isaiah said this in chapter 40, Surely the nations, think about all the nations of the world, if you travel, flying into all these airports, surely the nations are like a drop, one single drop of water in a bucket. Before him, all the nations are as nothing. They are regarded by him as worthless and less than nothing. Now, when you read that, if you didn't have any other context, you would say, oh, God is unloving. Everybody's worthless. He sees nobody. No, because all you got to do is look at the, a, a few verses before that. We see how loving God is. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arm and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads them that have young. So God's a very loving God. But what does it mean here in verse 15? The nations are like a drop in a bucket. Here's what it means. Imagine me today getting an eyedropper, getting one drop of water, driving to the Atlantic Ocean, and putting that drop of water in the ocean. What did I do for the ocean? I did absolutely nothing for the ocean. Did I make it bigger? I make it better with my drop of water? No. Man adds nothing to God. He's existed in all of eternity by himself, fully self-sufficient, fully, eternally joyful without man's additions. Number two, God is eternal. Don't think I have that up there. Apologize for that. God is eternal. Or I mean, God is spirit and therefore omnipresent. I do think I probably have it up there somewhere, but maybe later in the slide. Let me just see if I can do it and find it. There it is. All right. God is spirit and therefore omnipresent. He is everywhere. There was a woman on one occasion that went to Jesus. It was a day that absolutely changed her life. They began to get into a dialogue about religion, and she revealed that she was under the impression that God was a local deity. He was only one place at one 
time. See if I can find this. One second. There we go. Okay. She said, John 4.20, this woman talking to Jesus in a village called Sychar, our ancestors worshiped God on this mountain. So she's saying to Jesus, God is confined to this region. Jesus responds to her. And remember, she's saying, God owns this mountain. God lives on this mountain. Jesus is about to tell her, God lives on every mountain in every country in all the world because God is spirit. Jesus wanted her to know God does not have a body. That's the problem with having a body. I either have to pick right now, am I going to be at the sound stage or am I going to be up here teaching? But I can't be in two places at one time because I have a what? A body. I'm confined because I have a body and not spirit. God, because he's spirit, doesn't have a body, is not confined. He can be everywhere at the same time. David Voices in the beautiful Psalm 139, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. So Jesus said, everywhere that's high, God is. Everywhere that's low, God is. This very thought is repeated in Jeremiah chapter 2. Am I only a God nearby, declares the Lord, not a God far away? Do I not feel all of heaven and all of earth? He can do that because he doesn't have a body. He is Spirit, and that's why we adore him. That's why we applaud him. Every square inch of existence is filled with God. That's why we love him. This building right now is filled with oxygen. It's here in the auditorium, and it's in my office down the hall, one at the same time. In fact, if I want to go get the oxygen In my office, I have to walk there, which will cost me time to go get that oxygen. But that oxygen is already there. That's why God knows the future because he's already in the future. He's not constrained any place at any time. He is everywhere. He's here and he's already at the end of history because he doesn't have a body. He is eternal. God invented time, space, and matter for our benefit so we would have things to measure our life by. I want you to picture the world as a big ball. God is outside of the ball. Theologians call this attribute of God his transcendence. He is outside of the earth outside of the universe. Picture this ball as the entire universe, earth, planets, all galaxies, all stars, everything, all matter, time, and space inside the ball. God is transcendent. He's outside of it. Therefore, he is not controlled by anything that controls us, time, matter, and space. So God is transcendent. But what we love about God, one of his attributes, is that God is also Imminent. That is, by his own choice, the God who is outside of the ball chooses to come inside the ball to help those who live inside 
the ball. He's nearby. He's far away, not controlled by the ball. Then he comes inside and becomes confined by the ball. One of the most precious statements of Jesus' eminence is found in Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, when the angel told Jesus' parents, name him Emmanuel, one of his titles, which means God has entered the ball. He is imminent, caring for us, loving us, sharing life with us, serving us. God is with us. In a prayer that Jesus prayed at some point in his life, we didn't hear it. It's recorded in Hebrews chapter 10. When Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. Confinement, eminence. We'll talk more about the ministry of Jesus, our core beliefs, in weeks to come. But just understand, in order for Jesus to fulfill his mission on earth of removing man's guilt, Jesus had to be confined by man's body. So through the ministry of Jesus, we marvel at a God who is transcendent, controlled by nothing inside the ball. We marvel that this God became imminent and was controlled by the parameters of time, matter, and space inside the ball. And yet there were times in the ministry of Jesus Christ where he would remind us, though imminent, he's ultimately transcendent. You remember that day, Jesus and the disciples were crossing the Sea of Galilee. And they say, as they say down in Georgia where I pastored for 10 years, it came up a bad cloud. Storm rose on the sea. This is how Matthew 8 describes it. <clears throat> Suddenly... A furious storm came up on the lake so that the waves swept over the boat. But Jesus was sleeping. The disciples went and woke him saying, Lord, save us. We're going to drown. If Jesus had only been imminent, they would have drowned. If he was only a God nearby, confined by time, matter, and space, subject to the limitations of nature, they would have drowned. But Jesus demonstrated that though he's imminent, also transcendent, and he's not controlled by the confinements of time, matter, and space. Matthew 8, then he got up, rebuked the winds and the waves, and the sea was completely calm. So every time Jesus performed a miracle, it was a reminder that though he had come to share life with us, imminent, he was also transcendent, not controlled by anything in this world. Every time Jesus performed a miracle, it was a reminder that he had the authority to break the laws of science because the laws of science report to him. This combination of transcendence and eminence is what fuels the heart, should fuel the heart of every believer and especially every missionary. Like those who went to Alaska, those who live in Alaska, those who live all over the world. Because I serve a transcendent God who owns everything, 
I can be imminent and I can go and share in the suffering of the world, even if it costs me my life, even if I give up everything to be imminent, to be with these people who are suffering, because I serve God who's transcendent and preparing another world for me. I can give everything in this world because I belong to a God in another world. Third, God is supreme and sovereign. You might say I could have just used one word to describe these characteristics of God. But they're really a little bit different. The supremacy of God talks about his ownership of all things. Sovereignty talks about rulership. One of my favorite verses that talks about God supreme in his ownership of all things is in 1 Chronicles 29. And as I quote this, I guarantee a Barbara Luttrell in her in front of her TV, a computer at home, is going to be quoting this with me. I know that's among her favorites. First Chronicles 29, this is the supremacy of God. Yours, Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor for everything in heaven and earth is yours. Yes, Lord, yours is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. Wealth and honor come from you. You're the ruler of all things. In your hands are strength and power. So this is why we enter this sanctuary every week to applaud God, because we are loved and led by a God who owns everything. But God is not just supreme. He is sovereign. It means he rules over all that he owns. No greater verse of God's sovereignty than Psalm 115.3. Our God is in heaven, and he does whatever pleases him. I once counseled a college student struggling with theology, and I appreciate her transparency and honesty in telling me, I think it's sort of dumb that God gets to do anything he wants to do. But that's what sovereignty means. He can do whatever he pleases. Whatever is in God's mind, he is able to accomplish because he created and owns all that exists. Nothing is able to oppose him or stop him because he's transcendent. He's outside of the world that he created. It took a long time through a lot of pain for Job to fully grasp this. And I hope that we will look more at his journey later in subsequent studies but Job finally came to the realization and the comfort of God's sovereignty. Job 42.2, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. Love this quote by Charles Spurgeon. There is no attribute more comforting to his children than that of God's sovereignty. It is God upon the throne that we love and it is God upon his throne whom we trust. You might have seen yesterday a report in the news that I think we're in day 64 of all of the anarchy and rioting in Portland. Except there was a new addition to all of the, all of the burning. As you know, the, the folks there have been trying to burn down a federal courthouse. And last yesterday in front of the courthouse, 
they gathered a stack of Bibles and set fire to the Bibles. If they could, they would set fire to God. It's frightening. We're all sort of unnerved about that level of violence. Everybody unnerved except God, who is sovereign. This is supposed to be Psalm 2. Sorry about that. Psalm 2. The kings of the earth rise up, and the rulers band together against the Lord. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. Now again, you might look at that verse and say, that sounds unloving, as if God doesn't want to forgive sinners. Of course he wants to forgive sinners. It's why he came into the world. But it is a reminder of how foolish it is for mankind to rebel against God. To rebel against God is like trying to knock down a skyscraper with the mist that one would use from spraying a bottle of water. And God would laugh at such foolishness. So the sovereignty of God, especially in these times with germs, violence, financial markets, jobs, the sovereignty of God is precious to us. Disease, death, the sovereignty of God is precious to us, but not so to the world. Again, Spurgeon, to finish his quote, There is no doctrine more hated by the world than the sovereignty of the infinite Jehovah. Men will allow God to be everywhere except on his throne. They will allow him to be in his workshop making stars. They will allow him to sustain the earth or light the lamps of heaven. But when God ascends his throne, his creatures gnash their teeth. No stronger statement of the sovereignty of God than Isaiah 46, 10. Sorry, I left that out. I make known the end from the beginning, and I will do all that I please. I make known the end from the beginning, and I do all that I please. So what is the end that God planned from the beginning? Well, when God created the world, he made a plan to choose a group of people that he was going to save out of the world to live with him forever. That's his plan. Ephesians 1, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world. He predestined us through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. So God created a perfect world, and for all those that were a part of the world, he gave them a will that had the opportunity and the ability to rebel against its creator, and they did, we did. And once the entire human race was contaminated with a spirit of rebellion, God entered the world through Jesus Christ to give his life through suffering so that man could be forgiven of his rebellion and restored to God. Now, if you had been at the cross, which is the place where Jesus died and gave his body, you would have said that day, the world 
is out of control. But not so. Jesus even reminded his executioner of the sovereignty of God. You would have no power, John 19, 11, were it not given to you from above. Now let me emphasize the pain of the cross was horrible. Sovereignty does not eliminate pain. It just weaves tears and hope together. There's no words to describe the suffering and the horror of the cross. Suffering for the one who endured it, suffering for those who watched it. If you would have been there, you would not have been able to stop crying, maybe not able to look. You might have thrown up. You might have passed out. Everything looked like it was out of control. And yet just 50 days after Jesus died and rose from the dead, Peter preached this sermon to those who murdered Christ. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan, that's sovereignty, and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross, but God raised him from the dead. And he raised him from the dead in order to bring forgiveness for those who murdered him. Peter continues in his sermon, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And 3,000 people that day by the sovereignty of God turned from murderous hate to worshiping love by the sovereignty of God. Nothing can stop God's plan to Redeem and rescue a people out of this world to live with him forever in his other world. It seems like every night on television, we see another sporting event where people decide whether to kneel or stand during the national anthem. One group of people put it like this. They say, America is so bad that I kneel to show my disapproval. Another group of people say, America is so blessed, I stand to show my gratitude. So over the past year plus, I have been asked on countless occasions how I feel about all of this. And I respond simply by deferring to the sovereignty of God. There will come a day when all people and all powers and all places will assemble in the presence of the Lord. Political leaders, company presidents, engineers, doctors, actors, singers, welders, plumbers, teachers, athletes, mothers, fathers, sons, daughters, college students, singles, all angels and all demons, Every planet and every star, every river and every rock, every tree in the forest and every grain of sand on the seashore. And at that moment, one word will be spoken, Jesus. And in that moment, and in that moment, by the sovereignty of God, this will occur. At the name of Jesus, Philippians 2.10, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. 
and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I'm a fan of the Babylon Bee. It is a satirical cartoon that's published daily. And people like me who sort of run at 90 miles an hour of intensity ever so often need somebody to help me take my foot off the accelerator and have a little fun and laugh. And I love their satire. Two days ago, they posted this cartoon which reminded me of the sovereignty of the end of times. This is the headlines. Jesus still planning to assemble great multitude of every tribe, tongue, and nation despite ban on large gatherings. I was watching an interview this week with a pastor who was asked, things feel hopeless and things feel miserable. What is your word of hope to those who listen to you teach? I'll just paraphrase his words in these six statements. Jesus said, I'll build my church and the scheming of hell will not stop it. Matthew 16. Jesus promised all those the Father has given me will come to me. Whoever comes to me, I will never turn away. And all who come to me, I will rise up on the last day. John 6. Nobody will be left out. Their names were written in heaven before the foundation of the world. Luke 10, Ephesians 1. God is going to give the nations of the world to his son. Therefore, the nations should honor the son before he becomes angry. Psalm 2. We will triumph because Christ triumphs and we walk in his triumph. 1 Corinthians 2. It's not up to us to change the world. He has the plan. It's only up to us to be the tools he uses. Believers just need to be faithful, live godly lives, preach the truth, and watch the Lord do his work. He will do what he will do. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your eternality, your omnipresence that you're everywhere, already at the end of history. Thank you that you own all things. (laughs) You have given us wealth, came from you. You've given us health, came from you. You've given us food, came from you. You are supreme. And Father, we thank you that you're sovereign, that you will bring this world to the designated place that you chose before there was anything You will bring your church to its resting place in the city of God and the other world. We thank you that we are loved and led by a God who owns all things. We love you, God, on your throne. We trust you, God, on your throne. And we thank you, O transcendent God, who's not controlled by time and matter and space, that you entered into time, matter, and space, left the other world to send Jesus into this world, that you might forgive and save and redeem people in this world.
turning rebels into worshipers, enemies into sons and daughters. We pray for the nation and all nations. They would give homage to the Son of God, worship the Son of God, kiss the Son of God before he becomes angry. We thank you that he's come in love for us. We thank you that he's coming in wrath for justice. But God, while there's time, would the world kiss the Son, become his brothers and his sisters, and earn into eternal life in the world to come. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.